Welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. I am your host, Meg Durham, wellbeing speaker, educator, and coach. Together, we're going to explore lessons to help us live well. Let the learning begin. Welcome back to the School of Wellbeing podcast. I have a real treat for you today. In this episode, I chat with the warm and wise Dr. Tim Sharp. Tim is Australia's very own Dr. Happy, and he is at the forefront of the positive psychology movement and the founder of the Happiness Institute. Tim is a sought-after public speaker, best-selling author of multiple books, and a regular on Australian and international TV. Tim is wildly regarded as a leader in mental health and an authority on all things happiness in Australia. With three degrees in psychology, including a PhD, and an impressive record as an academic, clinician and coach, Tim is a big-hearted professional with lots to teach us about the art of living well. In this conversation, we discuss the art of getting to know ourselves, the importance of taking educated risk with our lives, the nuances of depression, how depression can impact the way that we feel and function, the obvious and subtle signs of depression, and so much more. I hope you enjoy my heartfelt conversation with Dr. Tim Sharp. Welcome, Tim, to the School of Wellbeing podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I am so excited. Every time I sit down to have a conversation, I'm so excited because the people who are willing to share their story and their understanding of the world really excite me. And I first saw you speak years and years ago when I was a teacher and it was a start of year presentation and what blew me away was you understood the science and that was a given but what really took my breath was you brought yourself you brought your own stories and you really brought the science alive so that's why I'm so excited to talk to you today Tim. Oh good I can't remember where that would have been but uh, I'm glad you enjoyed it I found it helpful. Absolutely. So let's kick things off with getting an understanding of how did you become so curious about this idea of cultivating happiness? Uh, well, I'll, I'll give the short version. And if you want me to elaborate on anything, uh, obviously feel free to ask. Um, uh, look, it was a, a long and winding road, I suppose, with a lot of stumbles along the way. Um, I guess if I go back to the beginning or the beginning in some ways is sort of finishing high school. Uh, to be perfectly honest, I had no idea at all. Um, like a lot of 17 or 18 year olds, I think, I don't, I don't think I was on my own there, but I literally had no idea what I wanted to do after school. Um, I came from a background where university was, was almost a given. So I was thinking about further study uh, without necessarily having any pressure. Um, but uh, I stumbled on psychology, to be perfectly honest, because it was the only thing that vaguely interested me. Um, I guess I, I'd had an interest in human behaviour for quite a while. I, I think I, 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 it, through my teenage years even, I'd sort of been interested in what made people tick, but I didn't have the vocabulary or probably the maturity at that stage to really understand what that meant or where it might take me. So I did go into first-year psychology, um, but to be perfectly honest, I was not quite the straight upstanding citizen you see before you today. Uh, I was pretty lost, uh, well, very lost, to be honest, um, uh, as an adolescent or late adolescent, uh, early young man. Um, so anyway, despite getting through first year university, I decided to take some time off because I, I wasn't quite sure if I was on the right path. 
um, at, at the beginning, it was meant to be like a four or five week, uh, you know, backpacking around Europe trip. Uh, I decided not to come home. So that turned into a year of traveling around Europe, which, uh, to be perfectly honest, was one of the best decisions I ever made. It was a fantastic experience. Um, both in terms of life experience, but also, again, growing up and, you know, seeing the big wider world, et cetera. Um, but I did come back and I did go back into uh, second year university, um, although I was still pretty lost. Um, so I stumbled my way through second year, got through that again. But uh, interestingly enough, I'd met so many people overseas. I'd met a whole lot of Europeans who'd seen more of Australia than I'd seen. Um, and at that stage, I'd, I'd pretty much only seen sort of, you know, bits of the East Coast, I suppose. Uh, I'm from Sydney. Um, and so when even though I came back, I had this inkling to do more travel um, and to do more travel in Australia. So anyway, long story short, I took another year off um, after second year and kind of did the same thing, you know, spent 10 or 11 months traveling around Australia, which again was a wonderful experience. Saw bits of Australia and had experiences that I you know, hadn't had before. Came back again, I thought I'd give it another go. <laughs> um, I guess I was persistent in some way. I don't, I don't quite know why, to be honest, but I thought I'd, I'd keep trying. And it was really in third year that things got a bit more interesting. Um, I probably started to settle down a bit and, and again, mature a bit. Um, but third year psychology does become you know, a bit deeper and more meaningful, I suppose. And, and we started to do interesting things like uh, what was called abnormal psychology. And it was really then, I suppose, that I'd started. That I started to think, well, hold on, there, there might be something in this. There might be something in uh, well, before before happiness, um, my focus was really on uh, well, clinical psychology. My background was in clinical psychology, so in a sense, the focus was much more then on uh, well, mental ill health, um, depression, anxiety, and distress and dysfunction, etc. So from then on, I, I settled down a bit more. I, I finished third year, went on to fourth year honours, um, which is part of the course I was doing. And I was doing pretty well at that stage, but again, really had no idea. I still didn't really, under, although I was interested in psychology, I didn't really understand where I could go with it, where it would take me. And when I finished fourth year, my honours year, I was still floundering a little bit. Um, and I had what I now look back on as probably one of the most significant moments in my life. I think we all have a couple of these in our lives, which is uh, where a lecturer, one of the lecturers who I'd sort of, I guess, had a bit of a relationship at the time, encouraged me to apply for the clinical master's degree, which I hadn't actually even thought of at that stage. I didn't really even know what it meant. Um, and there was only a few days left for applications. Um, so again, it was really one of those sort of sliding door moments which I'm glad, I'm incredibly glad and appreciative that I, I stepped through. Uh, so I did apply, I was lucky enough to get accepted. Um, and I went into, or well, the next year obviously went into the clinical master's program uh, at the University of New South Wales. And that was just fantastic. Li almost literally, I can still remember from day one, just loving it, loving every minute of it, loving the other people I was with. And it was the first time in my life that I could remember feeling I think I know who I am. I think I know what I could be. I think I know what I could do. And I started to think that I could actually be good at this. I could help other people and um, and 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 it just, I guess, it grew from there. So, so that was the first part of my professional life as a clinical academic. I, I went on to do a PhD as well. So I was a therapist, um, researcher, lecturer, and um, really thoroughly enjoyed um, both studying and understanding mental ill health um, but also helping, just as importantly, I suppose, helping other people as a practitioner to overcome some of those common types of, of distress and dysfunction. Um, the Happiness Institute came after that, so maybe we'll come back to that later. But I suppose just to, to set the foundation, the other thing that was important there, um, which I didn't tell anyone about for a long time, is that I'd also, 
experienced quite some severe mental ill health myself. So through most of my um, well, late adolescence and early adulthood, through those years I've just been describing, I experienced quite severe depression um, with, um, I suppose, a trigger warning here, uh, with some very severe episodes of suicidality. Um, so again, although I didn't really understand what it was doing to me or, or how it would play out at the time, I guess my other motivation was to understand myself and to help others uh, not suffer as much as I'd suffered at that time. So um, so that's the first part of my career. Um, uh, a, a little bit after that, or many years after that, at a, as I'd had a relatively successful career as an academic and then in private practice, um, I discovered what at those stages was the very early seedlings of positive psychology, which is now obviously a much more established field. But in those days, um, it's going back 20 years now, uh, or a bit over 20 years, I suppose, um, there were really just these sort of uh, glimpses of what might become a, a new field. And, and that's when I established the Happiness Institute as a way of um, promoting the principles of positive psychology. And that then became, I suppose, the second part of my career, which is uh, promoting uh, happiness and thriving and flourishing as much as helping people overcome distress and dysfunction. So, so my interest came about um, from personal experience. Um, I guess I've always searched for happiness uh, and from that uh, trajectory through a more traditional clinical psychology path into a, um, a newer, at the time anyway, positive psychology path. Oh, Tim, there's so much of your story that I'm just so intrigued by. And thank you so much for sharing all the different parts of that story, because I'm sure lots of listeners can resonate with that feeling of, I'm not sure who I am, I'm not sure where I'm going, kind of stumbling along here. And the part that really grabbed me was that when you stood in to that clinical master's and that love, that excitement of, wow, I've found a space that I get, that I can really understand and get my teeth into so isn't it amazing how sometimes people can open those doors for us that sliding moment for you yeah for sure well I think there's a couple of things there I think and and speaking now also partly as a, as a parent I suppose with two children who are trying to find their way I suppose and um, you know neither of them I mean they're both still young but neither of them really know what they want to do and so they look at their friends who seem a bit more clear and and I keep reminding them that it's fine not to have a clue. Um, you know, in hindsight, at the time, so I suppose I was mid-20s when I stepped into that clinical master's program and, and it seemed like I'd stumbled and bummed along for quite a, a while. But in hindsight, you know, that was relatively young, I suppose, to find my path. A lot of people don't find it well into their 30s or 40s or beyond, and that's okay too. And I think, you know, that's one of the messages both that I try to give my kids and even more widely, you know, just, just keep searching. Um there are some people, um, no doubt, who who know what they want to do from a very early age, and good luck to them. You know, that's fantastic. Um, I'm very happy for them. But I do think they're in the minority, and I think most of us. Uh, well, I, I think personally, I think on average it's mid to late twenties that most people kind of find some idea. But again, it can often be a lot later. My father, for example, um, uh, became very very successful later in life, but it was really in his forties. He he stumbled along, tried all sorts of things uh, for many years until he found his path which again was you know years after I found my, mine so uh, and yeah the other part of that is being open to opportunities being open to the suggestions of others or being open to those to step through those doors um, you know some people consider it as luck I suppose but in some ways we create our own luck by keeping our eyes open 
and being prepared to be courageous enough to take those steps if and when they um, you know present themselves. Yes, that courage piece, <laughs> the courage to someone's offered you an opportunity and then to step into it, even if you think, I can't do that, that's not possible, and doing it anyway and seeing what's on the other side. Yeah, well, again, so, again, that first one for me was the, the clinical master's program, and and I'd never really, you know, never given it any thought, literally up until a few days um, uh, before the applications are due. Um, uh, but it just seemed like it was worth a try. And, again, I, I, I'm incredibly grateful to that uh, lecturer who suggested it. Uh, she must have seen something in me that I, I hadn't seen at that stage. And then there were several other steps as well. So after that, um, my PhD, super, or my, my supervisor who encouraged me to do a PhD, that was another, you know, step into another big commitment. And then uh, then even when I established the Happiness Institute, um, you know, that was, uh, in hindsight, it, it, it seemed like a great thing to do and it, it turned out to be very successful. But, you know, at the time I was I was very well established. I had a very good reputation in clinical psychology and academia. And to be perfectly honest, some people thought um, it was a bit strange because in those days, positive psychology wasn't established. People thought I'd, I was sort of going, you know, trying to become some sort of Tony Robbins, pop psychology, whatever. And so it was in some ways a risk. Um, but I, I thought it was a risk worth taking. I could see uh, even then the attraction, well, I was attracted to positive psychology and I, I could, couldn't see why others wouldn't also. But so I guess I have, um, you know, I've taken a number of risks along the way, even the travel overseas and the travel around Australia was a, a risk in a sense. Um, uh, and I suppose the lesson, you know, we, we have, you have to take risks if you're going to make any sort of progress, if you're going to grow and become become who you can be. Oh, yes, that idea of taking risks. And there's a part of us that's so excited by a risk and is sort of, you know, exhilarating to think, oh, I'm going to take some risks. And there's another part of us that thinks, oh, but then that's risky. How am I going to handle the risk? So what did you learn from taking that risk and to start your own business? Like, what did you learn in that transition? Well, I probably should say I, I took calculated risks <laughs> most of the time. Um, and you're right, you know, so when I went into private practice, that was a risk. I was, again, I was well, I said I had a fantastic job at a world-renowned uh, clinic in a, in a major teaching hospital attached to a university position. So I was on a path to become, uh, well, 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 well through on a path to become exactly what I'd always dreamed to become, a clinical academic at one of Australia's top teaching hospitals, one of Australia's top universities. I was already doing some lecturing. And um, so when I went into private practice, I was actually stepping away from everything that I dreamed I wanted to do. Um, and it was at a time when I just got married, just had a, our first child, just got our first mortgage. So again, in hindsight, it was a pretty fucking crazy thing to do I suppose in the timing <laughs> but I did do it I suppose to be honest I did it in a graduate way so I went part-time and 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 I so I stayed on part-time went into private practice part-time and it was only when that started to establish itself that I left and went full-time and I, I think again there's an important message here. a lot of people think of risks as in very black and white terms or you know I have to do all of this or all of that um, but often like I did there is a middle path you can step slowly into the risk and keep one foot on safe ground and I think and a lot of the time that's uh you know the more sensible option you don't have to go 100 uh into a new path um and you know that I suppose that's played out in other areas of my life as well where I've 
kept a, a foot in safety, I suppose, and then stepped or you know dipped my toe into the waters of risk. Um, and uh, and then as the confidence builds, um, you know, I guess it's like in, in clinical psychology, in the treatment of anxiety, it's what we call gradual exposure, I suppose. You know, you don't throw in people in the deep end necessarily. You slowly build them up to facing their fears. And I think we can all learn something from that. Oh, we sure can. And what we can also learn from your story is sometimes we have an idea of where our life's going. We have this sort of imaginary trajectory and ladder and the ticker box, so we just keep going, going. And it's really interesting to hear that you had this path, this traditional path, and then you gradually, one step at a time, took another path. Why do you think you veered off the path that you initially had for yourself? What took your curiosity that way? Uh, well, to be honest, uh, what I dreamed or what I thought I wanted turned out to be not quite a, the same as what I thought it was. So, again, my dream was to become a clinical academic, my, that, that first goal, I suppose. And I discovered that academia uh, wasn't quite what I thought it would be, or actually to put it another way, that it involved a number of aspects that I hadn't quite foreseen and didn't quite enjoy. So I loved uh, the teaching aspect of uh, academia and I quite liked the research aspect um, but academia by definition uh, exists within a massive bureaucracy and I learned fairly quickly that I wasn't very good with bureaucracies and red tape and administrators um, and having to check 400 boxes and go to 300 meetings to get anything done. I didn't realise that at the time that I have an entrepreneurial uh, element or aspect to my personality I suppose um, and, and even establishing the private practice and then the Happiness Institute has, in, has, has involved that. But, uh, again, I didn't quite understand what was going on for a while, but I started to find academia uh, frustrating. And it was because of the bureaucracy. So uh, once I kind of realised, um, you know, because I was having these ideas, uh, I, I thought things could be done better, I thought it could be changed. And I had a fantastically supportive supervisor who in many ways agreed with me, but he was much more patient <laughs> than I ever was. Um, and he kept sort of saying, you know, yes, we can try this, but you know, take small steps, it's going to take time. I didn't want to take time. Uh, I was in a bit more of a hurry. And so when I sort of realised that and, and came to terms with that, I, I understood that I'd probably be happier um, uh, in another context. Um, so, uh, yeah, so that's what, and, and along the way, I suppose, the same thing. When, when I when I established the private practice, for example, and, and accidentally that became, uh, well, very, very successful. I didn't really set out to build it. I, I initially stepped out just to, to be a solo practitioner, to have freedom and flexibility. Um, but as I hinted at, when I discovered that kind of entrepreneurial gene, that grew into a sizable business. Um, you know, I was employed 30 or 40 or 50 people, I think, had multiple offices. It was, you know, turning over lots of revenue, I suppose, as a multi-million dollar business. And I discovered after a while that I didn't really enjoy running a big business, um, despite the fact that it was massively successful in, in all regards. Um, so again, each time, you, you know, you can't really ever know exactly what these things are going to be like until you get there. And, and so I suppose one of the things I think I've done well, and I certainly encourage other people to do, is to continually review and reassess and revise, you know, this is this what you thought it would be? Are you as happy as you thought you'd be? Um, uh, you know, I'm a, I, I'm a different person now to what I was 10 years ago and 10 years before that. So my, um, you know, my goals change and I think we need to adjust and adapt and I've, I've done that continually, even though my path has always been, you know, for several decades now within psychology, 
it's evolved quite significantly. And what I do now is very different to what I did 10 years ago, which is different to 10 years before that, et cetera. So, um, you know, I think that, yeah, that's important to understand that um, just because you achieve a goal doesn't necessarily mean that's where you'll be forever. Oh, there is so much beauty in that, Tim, because I think there's a part of us that can get stuck thinking, well, I thought I should do this and I'm doing this now. Maybe why aren't I happy? Why isn't it sort of measuring up with what I had planned? I was different to you in a sense that my whole life I knew I wanted to be a teacher. That's all I ever wanted to do. I played teachers for so long. And when I stepped into teaching, that was tricky because it turned out there was lots of parts of the job that really didn't suit me. (laughs) And so when you have these ideas and then you have to face a reality, you know, there can be some challenges in that. So how do people get to a place where they can start to see that things may not be working out the way that they thought or planned and have that acceptance or understanding and awareness that maybe it's not for me at the moment or things are changing. How can we unpack that a little bit? Well, well, again, I think it's largely trial and error. You, you can't possibly know. I mean, particularly, again, you know, you know at the moment, um, I'm not sure when this will go to air, but at the moment there's a whole bunch of people sitting there, year 12 exams, um, you know, 17, 18-year-olds, and a whole bunch of those people who will, then or you know soon or if they haven't already done so put in uh, you know applications for tertiary studies etc um but you know once again as we hinted at earlier i mean how many 17 18 year olds really know what they want to do or even if they think they know they want to be a teacher or psychologist or lawyer or engineer or whatever um it's often different once you actually get in there um so i i think there's nothing wrong with trying these things and and going for whatever you feel you want in fact you know, go for it. Um, but uh, but also I encourage people to 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 be prepared to be open-minded, to, to be prepared to review and reassess. And if it turns out that it's different to what you expected or that there are some aspects you like and other aspects you don't like, well, how can you then do more of the stuff you like? And, and so I guess that's what I did. I didn't completely change careers, you know, 100%. I didn't completely change direction. I just continued to refine what I was doing, I suppose, so that I did more of the stuff I liked focused more on using my strengths, as the positive psychologist would say, um, and tried as much as possible to eliminate or in some ways outsource the stuff that I didn't like but had to do. Um, and that's been an ongoing process and will continue to evolve. You know, I guess, again, what I'm, I'm, I feel like I've got a pretty good balance now, but I, uh, I'd be surprised if I was doing exactly the same thing in another five years. Um, and maybe that's just me. Um, you know, some people might be happier in a more steady path. You know, some people, we all have different risk profiles, I suppose, different, um, you know, different appetites for change. Um, so if you do know what you want to do, any of the listeners out there, and if you are happy with what you're doing and you want to keep doing it for 20, 30, 40 years, fantastic. But if not, you know, there are always options. Um and I, the good thing is I think that's more acceptable now than it was um, 30, 40, 50 years ago. I guess in my my parents' generation, it was kind of accepted that you just have the job, a job and you do it forever. So when my father, for example, changed careers lots of times, that was not very common. Um, I mean, it wasn't frowned upon, but it wasn't as common. Now, when I look at my children's generation, it's far more common, and I think that's a good thing. Yes, it's such an interesting thing too because as we're going along, we're having opportunities to get to know ourselves better along the journey. 
and slowly creating a life that works for us and our unique needs and strengths and working through that. So I'm really curious to have an understanding. You said a little bit earlier about your experiences with depression and it's an area that I'm really curious about and to get a really good understanding about because I have a feeling, and I'm not sure if it's true, but it's just a feeling that as a society we don't have a really well grasp on it. We don't have a good grasp on it. We don't have a really in-depth, nuanced understanding of it. So I'd love you to give us a little bit of an understanding of this idea. What is depression? Uh, well, yeah. uh, it's actually a, probably a far more complex question, uh, harder to answer than it might seem. Um, so well, well, there's, I guess there's a, at a very simple level, there's two ways to answer it. The, the obvious way is that depression a form of um, what psychologists might call negative emotion or unpleasant emotion. It's a form of distress. So in one way, depression is just a mood or it's a feeling that we all experience, that it's normal and appropriate to experience when things go wrong, when we uh, lose someone or something. Um, so you know, depression, uh, along with uh, grief and anxiety and sadness and even anger and frustration, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, is one of uh, many um, unpleasant emotions or forms of distress. Uh, but the other way of thinking about it, so if I put my clinical psychology cap on or you know academic psychology cap on, uh, what we would technically call major depressive disorder is much more than that. Um, so when uh, psychologists or mental health professionals talk about depression in that context as a formal disorder, what they're talking about is not just sadness or not just low mood, uh, it's a collection of signs and symptoms uh, that, uh, that involves much more than that. So in addition to low mood, it includes uh, low motivation. It includes a sense of helplessness and hopelessness. It includes um, difficulty decision-making, disrupted sleep, disrupted appetite, uh, and in some cases, um, uh, suicidality or, or feelings of nihilism and etc. So, uh, in order to reach a diagnosis of major depressive disorder, you need uh, a number—not necessarily all, but but the majority of those symptoms—and you need to have them for a prolonged period. So it's not just a bad day or even a bad couple of days, but you need to have those signs and symptoms for at least two weeks, and they need to be having a significant impact on your daily functioning. So again, it's not just about feeling sad and. Uh, you know, finding it a bit difficult to get through the day. It's about having extreme difficulty getting to work, getting to university or school, uh, socialising, etc. So, um, so that's one. That's the more formal way that psychologists or mental health professionals would think about major depressive disorder. That being said, um, there is a lot of debate about the validity of those diagnostic criteria. Uh, I'm not sure if you want to get into that now. Um, <laughs> And to be perfectly honest, I'm not a huge fan of those diagnostic criteria because I think they're, uh, well, to a large extent, they're arbitrary. Um, and depression, uh, well, there isn't really one type of depression. So my depression, for example, isn't going to be exactly the same as someone else's depression. In fact, there are multiple types of depression that look and feel and taste and smell different for different people at different times. And I think um Although the diagnostic system that we use uh, has some utility, um, I think it's also problematic in a lot of ways. Oh, that's given me such a good understanding. So really thinking about and distinguishing the difference between feeling depressed, having some bad days compared to two weeks, like a two-week period where you're feeling a range of different um, symptoms, looking out for different signs, 
And so when it comes to that depressed state, is there different types is or common ways that it presents? How can we understand it? Yeah, well, let me just go back again. So that two-week period, like a lot of these diagnostic criteria, is arbitrary. Um, yeah. And so it's a bit, it's almost, uh, you know, it's a little bit absurd in a way. So if someone had been, yeah, let's just say I had a, a number of those symptoms and was severely affected for 10 days, uh, does that, you know, it, technically that means I wouldn't necessarily get a, 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 di- a formal diagnosis. Um, but if I have it for 15 days, you get it. So, you know, it, it, there, there are complications like that. But uh, let's put that aside for a minute. Um so again, if we look at the, so here in Australia, um, we use a system called DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual of Mental Disorders. Uh, there's a similar one called ICD, which is used more through Europe, but they're, they're very similar in a way. So they have, uh, you know, they, they're the ones that define the diagnostic criteria. And within DSM, yes, there are a range of uh, what are sometimes called the mood disorders or the depressive disorders. So there's major depressive disorder. Um, there's what's uh, called bipolar disorder, which used to be called manic depression. So that in addition to episodes of depression, uh, people sometimes, these people uh, would also have manic episodes or episodes of hyperarousal and, uh, you know, uh, grandiosity, uh, et cetera, um, episodes where they, uh, it's not necessarily extreme happiness, like some people think it of, but it's often, it often involves extreme risk-taking. So, um, you know, sexual indiscretions and gambling and overspending, et cetera, high risk-taking behaviour. So, so yes, there are some subtypes of depression um, in the formal diagnosis, but even more so, just anecdotally, if you talk to people, you'll see all sorts of different flavors. And um, you know, depression, as I said, and, and a lot of a lot of other people do, is exists on a continuum. Um, and bipolar disorder exists on a continuum, etc. And uh, I, I think it's more important that we look at individuals and try to understand what they're experiencing. Because sorry, the other part of it is that. Uh, there's a high correlation, a lot of overlap between the depressive disorders and the anxiety disorders. Um, so technically in DSM, they're, they're seen as quite separate. You, know, you can have a diagnosis of major depressive disorder or you could have a diagnosis of one of the anxiety disorders and there's many of them. But in reality, when we look at people, there's extreme, there's a significant number of people who have both. Um, dep- depression and anxiety overlap significantly. So again, I... Uh, and it does concern me a bit when we try to put people into boxes, although there is some utility in that. I mean, it gives us a common language and it gives us something to sort of makes it a bit more tangible. Um, the reality is that most people that present, particularly at the more extreme end, have a mixed bag. Oh, Tim, that makes so much sense. You know, what you've just explained to me has answered a lot of questions that I've had in the last few years because everybody is different. Everybody's situation's different. So what it may look like for one person will look completely different for another. You know, I'm thinking of someone who can get to work, do all the things, and yet at home it's completely different, you know, or someone who can't get to work and do all the, like, everything. We are so unique in the way that we present. And also another point that you raised that I have thought about so often, and I don't have an understanding of it, and I'd love you to help me under, understand it. Is this relate? Is it the relationship between anxiety and depression? Why is it that it's very common that they come together? Can we sort of unpick that a little bit? Well, I think what we need to remember is that the so, and again, I do want to emphasise that, that the diagnostic systems we use, whether it's DSM or ICD or any of these, they they are useful in some ways. Um, you know, it helps with research. It helps with 
diagnose, it helps them understand what treatments are effective, et cetera. So I'm not necessarily suggesting we completely throw them out, that they're completely wrong or whatever. Um, but as I said, I do have some concerns, as do many other people who work in this, uh, you know, work in the area. Um, so, um, but what we need to remember is that to, to some extent they're arbitrary. Um, there, there's an element of uh, evidence based to these diagnostic criteria, um, but there's also an element of arbitrariness whereby a bunch of experts have sat down and said, this is one category, you know, this is one diagnosis, this is another diagnosis, this is another diagnosis. And those diagnostic criteria or those boxes have become more and more established. It, it's, it's, in some ways, it's become an industry that needs to keep reinforcing itself. Now, again, I don't want to sort of, I'm not necessarily promoting any conspiracy theories or anything here, but it is, um, you know, it is important to keep that in mind, I suppose. So, uh, you know, the, the reality, again, when we look at, um, you know, if you look at the average person who presents to a, uh, either just a private practice or a you know a tertiary referral clinic or you know hospital or whatever, um, they don't come in with a nice neat diagnosis. Because there's also a lot of other things on top of that. You know, you'll also see drug and alcohol issues often um, you know on top of or within uh, mood disorders. Um, you'll also often see relationship difficulties. You'll also often see things like unemployment or housing crises or things like that. So, uh, and again, the DSM doesn't necessarily handle that very well, I don't think. Um, I mean, it does have, uh, it would claim to have ways to uh, to take into account all those various factors. Um, but, you know, again, when I walk in, if I walked into a, a, a psychologist's office today or into a hospital or whatever, um, I'm not a, a box, a nice neat box, or even a bunch of boxes. Um, I'm a messy human being that experiences a whole range of messy emotions, uh, some of which are appropriate or many of which are appropriate, but some of which are, are, are just probably more extreme than they need to be or that is healthy. So, um, you know, I think that's, uh, and, and, you know, increasingly there are, uh, or there have been over, over decades, a number of people who have, you know, have promoted that particular approach and, again, argue that, um, you know, there might be some validity or more validity in treating individuals and individuals and and designing treatments to suit them accordingly. Oh, Tim, you're raising such a beautiful point around this layered experience that we all have. We're not just one thing. You know, we are parents, we're working, we're um, multiple areas that can cause us stress. There's multiple things that are happening in our lives and it isn't just one thing. And to look at these situations with a view that we are all different and yet there are some similarities that we can draw upon as well. So when it comes to someone who is experiencing depression, how does it impact the way that they feel and function? Uh, well, again, uh, differently. Um, you know, it affects everyone differently. Um, uh, but, but again, uh, uh, you know, there are commonalities. So we can understand from the research and from looking at you know, literally thousands upon or millions upon millions across studies across all around the world. So, um, well, so, so I suppose the most obvious way uh, that affects people is that it affects their mood. Um, so people with depression, by definition, will have very, very low mood. Um, and again, I'm not just talking about feeling a bit sad or, you know, the, the blues or whatever. Um, when, I'm, uh, in it, when I'm depressed, my whole view of the world changes. My whole view of myself changes. My whole view of a potential future changes. Um, it's almost like... Um, uh, it's almost like I'm in an altered state of consciousness. Um, and at the time, it's hard to see beyond that. This, but this is one of the skills that I've tried to learn and one of the skills I suppose that we try to teach people in therapy is to understand that their thinking is 
significantly biased at that time. And in a way, you know, so for example, one of the things I try to do is not trust myself when I'm really depressed. Because if I listen to myself, my depressed self, um, well, I, I probably wouldn't have stayed alive. Um, so I, uh, I, I try not to listen to myself. I try to listen to others. I've developed a whole lot of strategies over the years that help me. Um, but that's what, so it affects people in that their mood is very, very low. And again, you know, so for me, it's, it's hard for some people, it's hard to get out of bed. It's hard to eat. It's hard to have a shower. It's hard to make your bed. It's hard to do anything that other people would consider relatively simple. So then, you know, it affects our behavior, uh, functioning, even the simple daily aspects of functioning can become, you know, a hundred times, a thousand times more difficult. All of that obviously can affect our relationships. Um, so one of the more obvious ways that many of us uh, behave when we're very depressed is we withdraw. Um, you know, that's my default position. I withdraw in, I uh, lock myself away, both literally and metaphorically from others, which which then only exacerbates the situation. Um, so, you know, there are emotional effects, there are cognitive or psychological effects, there are social effects, et cetera. And again, many of them can actually become self-perpetuating. So because, you know, the less I do, the more I withdraw, uh, the worse I feel, uh, the more my thinking then becomes negative, the, the worse I feel again, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, there are a lot of differences and everyone is a lot different and some other people will have uh, more elements of anxiety and worry in that than I have, et cetera. But um, you know, they're probably the more, most common ways uh, that depression sort of can look and feel. So it sounds to me that it feels like a quite exhausting state to be in. Does it feel exhausting? Well, it does uh, for sure. Um, so, and and low energy, low motivation is a is a core part of depression. Um, uh, you know, as I said, sometimes it's just hard to get out. You know, to tie your shoelaces in the morning is you know making a cup of tea seems like an exhaustive episode. Uh, I, I personally, I've always been what sometimes called a sort of relatively high functioning. Uh, well, from from very early on, I learned that um, um, you know motion creates motivation, action creates. So I've um, mostly sort of fought my depression by uh, by trying to do stuff and knowing that when I do something, it makes me feel a bit better. That's been particularly helpful more often than not, and in fact, that's a strategy that therapists will call uh, behavioral activation, behavioral activation, or pleasant event scheduling. But it's also had a downside in that um, by by pushing through a lot of the time, I haven't probably acknowledged uh, what my experiences, um, and I've I've probably buried it and denied it a bit. So more recently, I've come to try and find a balance between uh, acceptance of depression and all that it brings, and commitment to trying to make myself and you know feel better, etc. And I think that's the sort of you know if if there's a magic bullet, it's finding that balance between allowing myself to feel absolutely shit at times, which I wouldn't have done years ago, allowing myself to feel really miserable and all the stuff that comes along with that, but then at an appropriate time taking necessary steps to try and pull myself out of it. Oh, that's so interesting to really think about that there are times to give yourself permission to feel shitty, to, to feel that way, and then also noticing when it's time to get into action so how can we understand that for ourselves oh look so that's kind of the holy grail um and it's <laughs> taken me you know uh several decades to try to get to that so and, and i still can't do it perfectly but I, I was actually explaining this to someone recently and, and i uh, there's a metaphor that i've developed over the years which i find helpful and, and which he found helpful as well which is a little bit like 
um, you know, imagine it's a, just a, a cold, rainy winter's day um, outside. Um, uh, and, and, you know, we can't control the weather. Um, and sometimes I can't control my moods and my emotional state. Um, but what we can do is control uh, what we do within or despite that weather. So on a cold, winter, you know, cold rainy winter's day, uh, I've got a choice. Uh, I can just snuggle up at home and have a doona day. Uh, and that's fine. You know, that's appropriate at times. I can just stay home. So I'm not going to go out in the rain. I don't want to get cold. I don't want to get wet. I'm just going to snuggle up and, and keep myself warm, um, which is a little bit like acceptance, saying, okay, you know, I'm just feeling really, really bad today. I just need to sit with this. I need to be with this. I need to wait till it passes. Uh, but I also have another option, and that's that I can actually go out into the rain and put a rain jacket on and put an umbrella up and, you know, rug myself up with jumpers and appropriate clothes and just get out there um, despite poor weather. And that's another option I have with my depression. Sometimes, um, you know, I don't necessarily want to, or I can't, I've, you know, because of commitments, uh, just stay at home under a dinner. I need to get out there. And so I've got to do whatever I can, whatever the psychological equivalent of, of you know, putting on a rain jacket and umbrella and just getting out there despite uh, poor weather. Um, so, yeah, you know, that's something that I try to sort of think of at times. And, and I guess it's a day-to-day -day or moment-to-moment -moment decision, you know, do I snuggle down? Do I get out there despite it? And, you know, that's um, it's something that I find helpful and maybe some of the listeners might as well. Oh, that's so helpful. I can see that image in my mind so clearly and it makes complete sense. And I'd love to pull it a little bit further and think about what would it be like if we always chose to snuggle and to stay in that acceptance? What happens if we stay in that state? Well, you'd never get anything done, <laughs> I suppose. And look, again, I mean, speaking from experience, well, both personal experience and my clinical experiences, uh, although that's appropriate at times, what we also know is that uh, withdrawing and doing less can actually make people feel worse. Um, because if I, you know, if I do withdraw and if I haven't mastered the acceptance and self-compassion elements of that, then I can actually lie there thinking, well, God, I'm useless, I'm hopeless, I'm not doing anything, et cetera. Um, you don't have to be thinking that, but so it, the potential is um, if you don't kind of quote unquote do it right, it can actually make things worse. But there are other ways of talking to yourself when you're having a dinner day. And as I said, as I sort of hinted at, self-compassion and self-kindness and self-encouragement is sort of part of that. Uh, and self-limiting is also, you know, so I guess if, if people, it's perfectly appropriate to do that at times, but if people were doing that, I'd encourage them to, put a time limit on, you know, say, okay, I'm going to do this for an hour a day, whatever. I'm sort of a bit reluctant to put specifics on that because everyone's different. Um, but at some point say, right, I've given myself the break that I need. I've had my, you know, dinner time, whatever it might be. What can I now do? Uh, even if it's just, you know, what small step can I now take to get back out there? Because, the again, the other part of that is that we know more often than not uh, doing something constructive will help you feel even just a little bit better, which then can create a sort of more positive upward spiral rather than the downward negative one. Oh, that's so interesting. And now I'd like to take the analogy to the other space that if we always, always suit up and get out into that rain and always forge on, what are our risks there? Well, yeah, look, as I said, that's probably what I did a lot of um, up until fairly recently, um, you know, I quote unquote fought it, uh, you know, didn't want to be beaten by it. Um, and to a large extent, that worked, you know, it, it kept me functioning, it kept me out there. Uh, but what it also meant is that I, I wasn't really 
facing up to the reality. I didn't fully acknowledge the you know many aspects of my experience. And and I also probably misled not just myself, but others. You know, the people around me thought I was doing much better than I was. Um, and I don't blame them for that um, because that's what I was trying to convince them that I was doing better. Um, uh, so that, although there's no doubt that can be helpful in the short term, over a long period of time, it's not necessarily sustainable uh, for most of us. Um, it just becomes too exhausting and it doesn't deal with the underlying problem. So uh, ultimately, at some point in time, uh, as I found and many other people have found, uh, you know, it'll it'll catch up with you um, and it'll, you know, it'll just keep eating away at you. So the downside, there's definitely an upside to that, but the downside is, um, it's it's you know, at some time uh, in the future or at some point it's going to come back to bite you. Um, so at some point in time we need to face up to the cold hard realities and deal with it in a more in a healthier way. Oh, I'm loving this conversation because it's so nuanced and people can start to think about their own experience. And I'm hoping then they're starting to think about other people's experience and. Sometimes what we see on the outside is not always what's happening on the inside. And do you have you seen that with the people that you've worked with, that there's sometimes a different thing happening inside compared to what you see on the outside? Oh, 100%. Uh, and I've also seen it personally. So, well, firstly, as, as a professional, um, well, in, in the latter parts of my clinical and coaching career, um, for a variety of reasons, I was seeing um, mostly very high-functioning, very successful people. So uh, I, won't go, I won't explain sort of how it came about, but my practice evolved, my personal practice evolved, and I was mostly seeing you know, as what would be called executive coaching, so senior-level executives, partners of professional service firms, et cetera. Um, so on the surface, externally, these people you know, were um, quote-unquote successful, financially successful, professionally successful, um, you know, kids at private schools, the right postcodes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But they were sitting in a room with me and there's a, there was a reason for that. They weren't happy uh, or as happy as they wanted to be. Their, their lives weren't as good as they wanted to be. Um, and a lot of other people in their lives didn't know that or couldn't see that. Uh, but I also found that in my personal experience. So when I, uh, I, you know, I talk about coming out, I didn't tell my personal experience for many, many years uh, for a whole variety of reasons. When I did start to come out, um, and I did it slowly and gradually, and well, my immediately my immediate family knew, of course. I mean, my wife knew, and my uh, my parents and my siblings knew, etc. But when I started to come out a bit more publicly, one of the first things I did is send a, an email to. Um, a, a small to medium group of who I considered to be my closest, oldest friends, you know, people I've been at high school with and university with, et cetera, um, and basically said something like, you know, you might have known a bit of this, but, you know, my story has actually been a lot worse than you probably realised, and I'm going to start telling people about it because I think it's important to smash the stigma, but I wanted to tell you first. Um, because some of those people would have seen little bits of it but wouldn't have known the severity or the or the or the, the depth um, of my experiences first. Um, now, to be perfectly honest, when I sent that email, I assumed people had known because um, look again at the risk of triggering people. I didn't. I didn't end up in hospital twice. Um, uh, I, I just. I just thought there's no way people couldn't have known how bad I was, how depressed I was. I just. It was so so obvious to me. Obviously, such a significant part of my life. And these are the people close to me. How could they not have seen it? But almost invariably, almost every single one of them came back with something like, oh, my God, we had no idea. Why didn't you tell me? 
And I don't blame them for not knowing, but because what I think what it showed me is how good I've become, how good many of us are at covering it up, at putting on a brave face, particularly, dare I say it, us men. Um, unfortunately, uh, it's not necessarily something we want to be good at, but it's something a lot of us do become good at for a whole bunch of social reasons. But, but yeah, look, I think what, what I learned from that is um, that by putting on that brave face, I was essentially uh, not allowing those people to get close to me because they couldn't. How could they? I was in a way, I was pushing them away by my bravery or what I thought was bravery, but it, it wasn't really. It was, um, you know, it was very unhealthy behaviour. So, so yes, yeah, so I've seen it both professionally and personally. Um, uh, again, I, it was a, I was pleasantly surprised. Well, I was surprised that so many of them were surprised, but I was pleasantly surprised by how many of them, almost all of them, who said, you know, God, we wish we'd known, we would have done more, what can we do now? Um, and thankfully, that's becoming increasingly common. I mean, thankfully, you know, in the last decade or so I suppose maybe longer I can't remember now you know we've had Beyond Blue we've got Are You OK Day we've got the Black Dog Institute we've got you know organizations like Batir who are very involved with young people in schools and so we've seen this massive movement of um of of, of, of real people sharing lived experiences smashing the stigma um which is vitally important because you know and this is why I do it I don't you know I'm a very private person but but I share my story because I want others to feel they're not alone I want others to feel that it's okay that there's there's no shame there shouldn't be any shame or embarrassment you know we're not we're not embarrassed to go to the dentist or to go to the uh, you know optometrist to get glasses why should we be ashamed if we've got um poor mental health seeing a psychologist should be no different to seeing a dentist or doctor or lawyer or accountant Oh, Tim, absolutely. I am here cheering because I think the more we can be honest with our reality, the more other people can be honest with theirs. And I think everybody can just have a big sigh of relief, like, oh, because if we're constantly performing and constantly acting like we've got it all together, there's probably a bit of disconnect because I, um, I remember thinking when I was younger that adults have it together like adults know what they're doing, they're on top of it. And then when I became a teacher, I'm like, well, all principals have it together because, you know, they're the next level of adulthood. And now I work with principals and I work with adults and I realise no one has it all together. <laughs> like no well, one has it together all the time. We're all a bit of a mess. And there's so much magic in that and understanding that. Well, 100%. And that, so, again, that it, paralleling the movement that I just described earlier is, is another movement around authenticity and vulnerability, which is super important. I mean, again, the reality, we're all messed up in different ways, some more than others. I'm probably a bit more messed up than, than many people out there. Uh, but, yeah, again, no one has it all together. And, and I mean, you know, for too long, too many people have propagated that myth that they've got it all together, that they've got this you know, life of perfection. And I mean, I don't think anyone did it intentionally. That's just kind of what we were socially conditioned to, you know, to, we were taught to believe that's how we should behave. Um, and I'm so grateful to be part of this movement um, and to, you know, to be living in this time when it's becoming okay not to be okay. It's becoming okay to be imperfect um, because, you know, to pretend otherwise is just absurd. I mean, you know, is there anyone out there that will put up their hand and say, I'm perfect, I've got everything together? I mean, I'd love to meet them. I've met lots of people. I've never met anyone yet. Uh, not principals, not parents, not teachers, not anyone, uh, not even psychologists um, who have it all together. And why should we? You know, why should we even expect that anyone would? It's um, Again, it's almost absurd to, to imagine that that would be a possibility. 
Oh, yes, absolutely. And I'm putting my hand up, not perfect. I definitely don't have my shit together. You know, I'm human. And I'd love to um, get a little insight from you. How's it been since, as you said, coming out? Like, has have you felt different in yourself? Has there been less stress around trying to be something all the time? Well, it's a, it's a really interesting question and it's something I've given a lot of thought to because, you know, there is a lot of talk in recent, you know, again, in the last five or 10 years, there is a lot of encouragement for people to come out and share their stories. And I think that's fantastic. But there's not necessarily a lot of discussion about how to do it and what it will be like, um, because it's not that simple. Um, and it will be very different for different people. And so for me, you know, it's actually been, there's been ups and downs uh, and things that I hadn't, I hadn't expected, hadn't predicted that people didn't talk about. So to be perfectly honest, when I first, you know, initially there was this sense of relief. It was fantastic. I felt, you know, thank God I don't have to, you know, put on this brave face anymore. I can be more open and honest with family and friends. And that felt fantastic. But then for me, and again, I'll, I'll preface this by saying everyone's different and everyone's um, path will be different. But for me, I then, having pretended to be so, and remember, I mean, at the time, you know, I was known as Dr. Happy, the Chief Happiness Officer of the Happiness Institute. Uh, I was known as, you know, as, at the risk of sounding immodest, you know, very successful, very big reputation in, in all sorts of ways. So, um, you know, so it was quite a surprise to many people, particularly publicly. But uh, so there was initially there was a sense of relief. But then having put on this brave face and this sort of, um, you know, positive persona for so long, I actually slipped into spending too much time thinking too much about my depression and actually in a, in a way I actually became more depressed for a while not so much more depressed I think but I just spent more of my life living the depressed part of me um, and then it took me a while and I still sort of struggled to find that balance between you know so what I now try to do so the depression is just one part of me but at different times in my life it's become too much of me it's become all of me uh, it's just one part of me. And for me, it will always be there. I've accepted that now. Um, I can manage it largely. To, you know, it, it, more often than not, I can manage it by using various strategies. But, um, but I need to make sure that it doesn't become too much of me, that there are other parts. There are, you know, there's, there's an optimistic part of me, the hopeful part of me, the, uh, the kind and caring and compassionate part of me. And at times I've, I've struggled to get that balance right. Um, and I think that's important for people who are thinking about coming out, so to speak, um, you know, just to take it step by step. You don't have to do it all at once. You don't have to tell everybody everything at once. Start off with one or two really close friends or family members and then slowly, um, you know, people ask me a lot, for example, should I tell people at work at the workplace? And I would say, well, it depends. It depends if you think they're going to be understanding on it. If, if you don't think they'll understand, then it might not be worthwhile. It might not be helpful. Um, but if you do, then for sure, because you know, I do think the more of us that, speak out the better but only if it's in your interest only if it's going to be healthy and helpful for you and again that would differ a lot for different people at different times in their life mm, that gives so much for people to really think about and I think it would be a good point to think about what are some strategies that people who are listening they maybe have experienced different parts of their life where they've had a depressed mood or it might be an ongoing I'm not sure that the situation people listening are in but what are some things that we can do to have that foot in hope like what are some things that have worked really well for you and the people that you've worked with yeah well I mean just to again everyone's different um but I'll just at it in a sort of fairly high level the general strategies that we do know will mostly work most of the time for most people 
are things like, um, you know, setting and working towards meaningful goals. Um, it sounds pretty simple, but it's massively effective. Um, so set goals, meaningful goals for you, relevant goals for you, and just slowly chip away and work towards achieve because achievement and accomplishment is important and it makes us feel good. Um, looking after our physical health and well-being is important as well. I mean, you know, too often for too long, psychological health and physical health are being seen as separate. But that's, again, that's absurd, I think. So for me, you know, exercise, for example, is one of the most effective things for me. Exercise is a stress buster. It's an antidepressant. Um, you know, we need to exercise not just for our physical bodies, but for our mental health as well. Um, good sleep is another part of healthy living, which is vitally important. I mean, for me, that's been super important. It's, it's very hard to be happy and healthy if you're sick and tired all the time and so many of us are tired all the time so if you're constantly sleep deprived as many of us are you know how can you possibly function at your best so you know set and work towards many of your goals look after your physical health exercise and diet nutrition um hope and optimism are vitally important and you know there, there are a couple of things that constantly eat away at them one of which is uh, watching the bloody news uh stop it <laughs> stop watching the news um stop but well i have a love and Hate, I love that relationship with it because I like to know what's going on. I'm, I'm, you know, very politically minded, etc. Uh, I'm socially aware, so I do need to. But I, but I also find it very depressing at times. So what I've come to do um, is actively search for positive news. And the, and the good news is there's a there's a lot of great people doing great things. And if we search for good news stories, positive news stories, there's a lot out there. Unfortunately, we won't see it in a lot of the mainstream media. Um, but it is there. So actively search for the good stuff because it is there and it does make us feel better. It helps us feel hopeful to know that there are people working on social injustices, working to uh, you know, help those in need, et cetera, et cetera, whatever your passions or interests might be. Um, and one of the other big things, possibly the biggest thing, um, for, which again often gets sort of ignored or overlooked a bit, is that my mental health is not just about me. It's about my relationships, my family and friends. So our social connectedness, um, uh, the, the extent to which we feel connected and, and, and have a sense of belonging is vitally important as well. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, for me, when I'm really depressed, my uh, default reaction is to withdraw and lock myself away. But that's also one of the worst things for me. Uh, it makes me feel worse. Um, I do need to have alone time, there's no doubt about it. Um, but what I try to do and what I've got a little bit better at is reaching out and connecting, particularly with my wife, with my children, with a couple of close friends, with family members, um, because social support is super important. We, you know, we don't have to do it all on our own. Um, you know, I think that the self-help, self-development movement's been fantastic. There's a lot of great things, but there's been too much focus on self. Um, mm. And it's, I, know I don't have to cope on my own. I'm allowed to ask for help. I'm allowed to accept help. And if and when I can... That makes a massive difference. So, um, you know, don't be afraid to put up your hand, to reach out. Um, you don't need hundreds of friends. You don't need thousands of friends. You really need one or two. And if it's, again, if it's a partner or family member, fantastic, let them in. Uh, that's something I've really had to learn how to do is to let other people in. And I still struggle at times, but when I can do it, it's, um, you know, it's very important. Oh, they're such helpful strategies to think about. And it's such a variety of different ways in, depending on where people are at. They can think about the physical side. They can think about reaching out for support. There's so much there. And I was just wondering, as we're speaking, Tim, do you have any advice for someone who the rain is here, the clouds are here, it's a rainy day for them, it may have been a rainy day for a while, and 
they may be in a state where they've been tucking up on the couch or going out, whatever their experience is, any advice for them as they are navigating this life with depression? Yeah, well, look, I'd say um, just try your best. Um, Well, first, I'd probably start off by saying allow yourself to feel miserable. You know, it's okay not to be okay. We're going to almost all of us go through stages at some point. But, again, we don't want to sink too deep into that. We don't want to let ourselves get too bogged down, you know, buried under the dune, so to speak. Um, So the good news is, I mean, compared to when I first suffered my worst bouts, um, uh, this is pre-internet, really, or the very, very, but, you know, so the good news is now there's a lot of fantastic resources available. There's a lot of great podcasts like this one. There's a lot of great free resources on some great websites. So, um, you know, reach out to those sorts of websites, to those, um, particularly the reputable ones. Again, like, you know, Are You Okay Day has some great resources, Beyond Blue, etc. Look out to those things and and try what they're recommending. There's some great books some great podcasts and audio books, et cetera. Um, and, and just, but, but, but be realistic in your expectations. Don't expect magic cures, just in you know, any small, just try to make small progress a little bit at a time. Uh, that being said, if you're really struggling and if you tried a lot of these things, as I suspect a lot of people have, and you're not making much progress, then please seek professional help. Um, you know, they're, they're, and don't wait too long. It's better to get in early. Go to your GP um, who might be able to help you or at least recommend someone who can. Find a good clinical psychologist uh, or, you know, appropriately qualified mental health professional um, because there is help available. We do have effective treatments, um, you know, that will help most people most of the time relatively quickly. Um, and, you know, again, just like we all need to go to the dentist sometimes or whatever, um, it's okay to go to a professional. These people are trained um, with, you know, and well-equipped with resources that will help you. you. You probably don't need to be suffering as much as you are. So, you know, try what you can, but don't be afraid to see expert professional help if you're not getting as far as you like as quickly as you like. Oh, that's absolutely beautiful. And I hope that everybody listening has learned so much about this idea of depression and just how nuanced it is. And there's always an invitation for us to get to know ourselves a little bit more, to get to know others a little bit more, to look out for cues, to become a little bit more skilled in noticing others and allowing that beautiful, authentic connection To wrap this beautiful conversation, Tim, up, I would love you to finish off four sentences. Would you be able to do that for me? I'll do my best. (laughs) Okay. So the first sentence is, I'm inspired by. Uh, At the risk of sounding horribly cliched, I'm going to say my wife, uh, who is the most incredible example of unconditional love and unconditional support, not just to me, uh, but to our kids and to almost everyone in our life. So, uh, and, and I think, you know, that unconditional love is something the world could do with a lot more of. So um, I'll say my wife. Oh, that's beautiful. Uh, when life feels hard. When life feels hard, I uh, try to appreciate that that's okay. Uh, I'm, a, I'm, pers- I'm a very sensitive person, so I find life hard a lot of the time because I'm very sensitive to life's injustices. But I, I try to accept that and try to, again, look for the good that exist despite the the difficulties that are all that are often out there. An underrated skill is self compassion. Um, it's become more and more important in my life and in my coping. Um, unfortunately, it's not something we're taught in schools. Uh, well, actually, it, it, a little bit more now, I suppose, than you know, 10, 20 years ago. Um, but I would argue that that's possibly the most important thing 
anyone can ever learn or that we could ever teach, particularly younger people and our children, uh, the idea that we're accepting our imperfections, um, being kind to ourselves regardless of that, and remembering that you know we're all imperfect together. So, um, yeah, I'd probably say self-compassion, which sounds easy, but it's harder to do in practice. <laughs> I'm laughing, Tim, because isn't that true? So many things that we talk about in this space sound so easy (laughs) and yet (laughs) they are hard to do. And so to finish it off, I am looking forward to. I'm looking forward to enjoying, um, I was about to say the final stage of my life. That sounds like I'm about to die, but I I kind of feel, I mean, maybe in the the third act in a sense, um, I feel very privileged uh, in many aspects of my life that I have a lot of control over what I do uh, and when I do it. And I feel like I'm almost at a stage where I can really enjoy that, despite what I'm sure will be some ongoing difficult times. But uh, yeah, I want to enjoy uh, the foundation that I've built. Um, and particularly, I suppose, part of my enjoyment of that is uh, doing as much as I can and helping others as much as I can. Oh, uh, Tim. Thank you so much for your willingness to share your experiences, your stories, your insights. I know that this conversation will open up new ways of thinking and feeling and functioning for people. I just know that by listening to this kind of information, there are some doors that will be opening up, and I'm so grateful for that, Tim. Thanks so much for having me. (laughs) Pleasure. So that's Tim on the what is my podcast called? I've forgotten now. <laughs> the School of Wellbeing podcast. So thank you so much, Jim. It's just been so good. Uh, thanks again and good luck with it all. I look forward <laughs> to seeing it come out into the world. What a heart and mind opening conversation. I was so lost in the moment that I even forgot what the podcast was called. How embarrassing. <laughs> Dr. Tim Sharp has the ability to bring himself to every conversation and he invites us to think about how we're showing up and how we're living our lives and is there a way that we can dip our toe into a little bit more hope, a little bit more optimism, a little bit more risk with the choices that we're making. Before you go, I would like to invite you to stop and take a moment to think about the two following questions. One, from this conversation, what is one thing you want to remember? What is your pearl? Number two, what is one action you can take in the next 24 hours to support your well-being? With the world opening up, I am so excited to get out and about and share the well-being message. If you're looking for a well-being speaker for your next event or staff professional development session, please reach out. I love to share well-being education that makes sense. I'm currently working on ways to create spaces for big-hearted humans to connect, share, laugh, and learn in authentic ways. So subscribe to the Thought of the Week to be kept in the loop and all the announcements. I would love to hear from you. What are your pearls? What are you learning from these conversations? Connect with me via LinkedIn, Facebook, or Instagram. To support the show, please rate and review on iTunes and share with your family, friends, and colleagues. If every listener shared with one other person, it would have a significant ripple effect within the community. And that is my big hope, that every conversation creates new ways of thinking, feeling, and functioning within the community. All the links from this episode will be in the show notes. 
Thank you for listening to an episode of the School of Wellbeing. This episode was proudly brought to you by Open Mind Education. Open Mind Education is committed to sharing wellbeing education that makes sense. To learn more, visit the website openmindeducation.com. There you can sign up for the free five-step energy guide to help boost your energy so you can better navigate the ups and downs of life. Thank you for listening and I look forward to sharing more lessons in the School of Wellbeing next week.